this episode, I speak to a former colleague, Dave Donnelly. I have kept in touch with Dave over the past decade, but this is the first time we've actually sat down together in that 10 years. So besides providing what I think is excellent content for the series, this interview constituted a highlight of the month that my family are away in the United States, a real boost to my morale. I'm talking to Dave Donnelly, and it's 10 years since we worked together at Australian Marine Ecology, and since then, you've done a lot of work with marine mammal observation, and you currently fly around in a Cessna Skymaster doing that, and you live in a house full of Border Collie poodle puppies. So, as far as I can tell, you're crushing it, Dave. How are you doing? <laughs> Life has uh, changed for the better, what can I say? <laughs> uh, what was your first experience of Antarctica? Oh, I think like most people, the first experience of Antarctica is seeing phenomenal photography in National Geographic, uh, followed closely by reading the book South. A classic. And um, what was your first opportunity to head south? We're not going to talk about my first opportunity because I said no. <laughs> my first opportunity was to join an aerial survey team in 2008, uh, eight, nine to survey for minke whale distribution along the ice edge in eastern Antarctica. Um, sadly and regretfully, um, I declined the offer and was not included in future aerial survey programs. Uh, so that would have gotten me, got me onto the continent. Um, unfortunately, uh, I'm still yet to set foot on the continent itself. Who, who was that project run through? That project was with the uh, Australian Antarctic Division at the time. Um, and also CSIRO. And, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't differentiate between people getting a foot on the continent and going to Antarctica. I think that there's a lot of snobbery about that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, if you've seen an iceberg and a seal and a penguin, I think you've covered it. So what, what were your first opportunities to see those things? Yeah, uh, so the first opportunity was 2013, uh, I, I was offered a position as a vessel operator, a coxswain, on a tagging vessel. Um, the Antarctic Division advertised for positions. I was successful in getting one of those positions and uh, did a heap of training on Tasman Peninsula uh, using soft tags, which is a, um, a replica uh, satellite tag on humpback whales, uh, where we trained as a team before heading down in 2013 to take on the big ones. That's the Antarctic Blues for the same process, which was um, a phenomenal opportunity out of New Zealand, out of Nelson, New Zealand, on a, a vessel uh, owned by a fishing company over there. So we were very, uh, it was very different to a lot of people's uh, experiences in that we were chartering a commercial fishing vessel to do a whale research program. What size vessel were you running that from? Uh, that was a 59 meter um, trawler and it was relatively small for the task but as it turned out it was the right boat. And were you tagging from the bow of that vessel or were you working in smaller vessels from that mothership? Yeah we were um, launching a 6.5 meter rib uh, so aluminium hulled inflatable vessel which had a bowsprit on the front and a team of five people on board. So every time a blue whale was sighted and it was determined that it was doable, if you like, um, we, we, the weather was in our favour and the, and the whale was relatively uh, stable in its behaviour, uh, we would launch the vessel and head off and make an attempt uh, to try and tag. 
a, a six and a half meter vessel alongside a blue whale is quite a contrast. What what was your first experience of a, a blue whale like? Um, yeah, well, going down to Antarctica wasn't my first blue whale experience. I had a little bit of understanding of what to expect. Um, I'd worked with blue whales on the west coast of Victoria for some time and, uh, and also seen them in New Zealand um, from small vessels. Um, so there was some understanding, but driving around blue whales for photography is very different to driving around blue whales for satellite tagging and biopsy. So my first experience, um, it was just, I don't know, I guess it just came fairly naturally. I got in the spot that I needed to get because I'm so used to working with humpback whales that the, really the only difference is numbers in there. And when the numbers are meters when it comes to this. So it's um, a big, big animal, but essentially the anatomy is very similar. So I did what came naturally to me and that worked. Nice. How many different species of whales have you encountered in southern waters? Ah, it's a good question. I need to go to my notes. <laughs> um, there's a lot of species that occur in the southern ocean of, of cetacean, um, and I have seen quite a few of them, but uh, as with most people, and uh, probably the majority of people, I'm yet to see them all. So I... I guess I've seen the the big the majority of the big guys being the say whales, fin whales, blues, humpbacks, southern right whales, sperm whale. Um, they're all things that I see regularly. Um, it's more the cryptic species that I'm I'm yet to see uh, or yet to see a lot of. I'm yet to see a southern right whale dolphin or a pygmy right whale. So uh, there's still there's still time and there's still opportunities. I, I, <laughs> it's what keeps us going. I think um, us, us naturalist type people. I saw a shovel-nosed ray at Rosebud last week, and it astounds me that as I approach 50, there's still macrofauna that Port Phillip has yet to show me. Oh, it's yeah. so exciting. I think that's the same for many people, even seasoned divers like ourselves. I recall in 2012, you took time off from Australian Marine Ecology and headed south and came back incredibly excited at having seen a shepherd's yeah again that was part of our training um so we we worked off the west coast of victoria to test sonar boys which are, are military devices you traditionally use for detecting the presence of submarines in uh, in deep water environments um they've been recommissioned or repurposed if you like to um to deploy and detect blue whale calls so yeah we we went off into the west coast of victoria and uh as part of that work which was a success by the way we also encountered a few other species and um shepherd's beaked whale was one of them it was a species that i'd seen before uh, and but my colleague who is a very seasoned uh, marine mammal specialist had never seen it was the only species i'd seen that he hadn't um, so in a, in a way that trip ruined it for me but it was also a fantastic experience to be able to see so many of them together and, and add information in a scientific publication, which we, um, we, I think we published in about 2018 in the end. So a fantastic um, record, and we did see them multiple times during that, that period. How much information did that add to the, the overall knowledge of Shepherd's Beaked Whale, just to give the listeners a, a context for how rarely they're actually seen? Yeah, well, that experience uh, at the time, I think, was only the fifth time they'd been seen alive um, from a boat, from a vessel, which is obviously a better way to see them, so you can see more detail. The opportunity presented for scientific understanding and general knowledge was that 
they were boat friendly. They stuck around. Um, there was a large number of them. There was 12 of them in that particular, the, the first encounter. And we'll able to document them. If you, if you like, map them, map them from head to tail. We got a lot of opportunities and that pre presented us with the opportunity to, to write the paper, which is a diagnostic paper um, on, well, <laughs> you know, fundamentally, um, I think the important thing about science is not how much statistical analysis you can do, but we're still yet to, un to see some animals alive and to properly document them. So for me, um, my, the science that I'm involved in is all about what does it look like? Where does it live? <laughs> what does it eat? Um, those sorts of things. And that was something we didn't know about shepherd's beaked whale. We didn't know what it looked like um, from t head to tail. We didn't know the, the, how they presented at sea. We didn't know if they were social or, or not. Um, and we didn't really know where they lived. Everybody suspected they lived in a thousand meters or more, but really they're a, a rarity in terms of beaked whales. They, they come up onto the shelf regularly and our data that uh, myself and colleagues have collected very clearly demonstrates this, that there are hundreds of meters, not a thousands of meter species. In fact, they probably a bit, bit of both, but continental slope up onto the shelf is where shepherd's beaked whale live. Australia only ceased commercial whaling in our lifetimes. I think 75 was when Albany shut down. What's the, the current state of thought and what's the data look like in terms of recovery from whaling in the Southern Ocean for the various species that were targeted? I, I think the answer to that question is yet to be determined um, purely because not enough people do science in the Southern Ocean on whales. Uh, we tend to do uh, a lot of research work along our coastal environments because things like southern right whales and humpback whales are very uh, helpful in that they are coastally orientated at uh, certain times of the year. So a lot of the work that's been done is only, has been done on those two species. And obviously for humpback whales, it's, the story is good. For southern right whales, the story is also good. But if you drill down into subpopulations, um, it's perhaps not as good, um, though there is a lot more work to be done there. Um, so I'd say that at least for humpback whales, the story is great. There's probably a recovery level that's close to pre-whaling numbers. For the larger species, the pelagic species such as blues, says, humpbacks, um, uh, sorry, uh, blues, says and fins, it's less known but looks promising. The numbers of fin whales that we were seeing in the Southern Ocean, um, some pods, well, are they still pods when they're nearing 100 animals i don't know but uh yeah there was there were some estimates around the numbers of animals aggregating in feeding locations as being somewhere between 80 and 110 animals at once if you can imagine sunset icebergs orange light flat calm seas and as far as you can see in most directions blows of eight to ten meters tall um, scattered across your entire line of vision that's what it was like amongst fin whales in the antarctic and to me, you know, that's a good indication that at least we're seeing some nice aggregations of feeding whales. And our adventurers are not the only ones that have seen these aggregations. So it would be, I think it's a positive thing. But I mean, is that 10% of the, the total population? Is 100% in the area? I don't know. They may still be under threat. Um, and we, I think we have to assume that they're not yet recovered, um, given the numbers of whales that were taken through the um, industrial whaling era.
which came to an end in 2019 with the last of the Japanese excursions. Do you think that it's likely to kick off again? Oh, I think think we'd be naive to think that there isn't um, loopholes or planning in place to continue whaling in one way or another. Um, All we can do really is maintain a a vigil, um, not assume that everything's okay. Um, Things like dropping the protection level of humpback whales when a population study hasn't been done in over five years, I think is an error, particularly with new threats emerging. Just because whaling's not present doesn't mean there aren't other threats. And some of those threats extend to what we've always thought of being a good thing, and that is commercial whale watching. Um, That's not without its impacts. If you combine that with the development of uh, wind farms in migratory corridors, the development of, or the continuation of uh, seismic exploration, oil and gas, the expansion of um, commercial fisheries, different fishing types, um, and combine that with the growing population of animals, or theoretically growing population of animals, it's inevitable that these things are going to intersect and interact. And um, that's not often a good thing, uh, particularly with uh, entanglement and displacement of animals. And not to mention, you know, the effects of, on their prey. These animals are large predators. In fact, they're probably top of the pile in terms of if you count by individual animal, how many do you eat in a year, Mr. Humpback Whale? And it'll be more than a, a white shark eats in its lifetime. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, I think there's a lot of things to consider um, and not all of those are resolved. So we're, I think it was a little bit hasty to take humpback whales off that um, uh, endangered listing. Same question I ask everyone who's visited Antarctica in any form. What's the most inspiring and what's the most harrowing thing that happened to you while you were in the South? Hmm, it's a good question. I mean, I think for, the answer is the same for everybody. Um, in terms of their first experience and obviously seeing a large iceberg is inspiring and amazing and I don't think anybody would dispute that. I think that they would be uh, always remembering their very first experience with an iceberg. Um, And the thing about icebergs for me is not just being big, white and unusual because we don't see them on our coastline, but um, it's that they're forever changing and the moment you see them, is the only moment they look like that. For the rest of eternity, they'll never look the same way you saw them on that day. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting thing for people who are interested in art and uh, and ever-changing, ever-evolving planet. Um, they're just so diverse and dynamic, incredible things. Um, you could pretty much live on one for a long time before it disappeared and probably beyond your lifetime in some cases. Um, yeah, and the other harrowing experience I guess is also an inspiring one and and that is the interaction with the first blue whale tagging event Um, was just that the enormity of that animal when it's sort of five or six meters from your vessel traveling at speed it weighs somewhere in the order of 80 ton Uh, for some it's a, a great deal more in total our little boat probably weighed maybe a ton with all of us on board uh, I, I think that would be a, a, a fairly um, accurate exaggeration. So we're a tiny, tiny little mosquito um, playing with a very, very big animal that can do us a lot of damage if it chose to do so. 
Um, so that was an inspiring and, and challenging moment, um, I think, for everybody on board. But really the one that created the most havoc for us was being amongst um, five blue whales in a what's called a, um, well, some people call it a heat run, um, others call it racing groups, but it was most likely a female being pursued by four males very, very fast. Um, we tracked them at over 18 knots in not rough conditions, but it wasn't flat either. Um, and no matter what you do, no matter how good you are, you're not in control of those animals. And we got into a position where all we were in the middle of that racing group. And uh, as a cautious skipper, um, I had to pull out of there and take a deep breath and go, well, I don't want to be in that spot ever again. But it was exhilarating scary inspiring um and just totally amazing um as much as i will remember it i probably don't want to be in it again <laughs> that's amazing and answers the next question i had which was how fast can blue whales travel 18 knots is thumping along for an animal yeah and they can travel faster we we just tracked them at that speed i had took a bit of a look at the um and our navigation system, which is not very useful <laughs> down close to the South Pole or that far close to the, that, that far down towards the South Pole. But um, the speed was, um, yeah, amazing. And, and one way, one method that I used, which I learned very quickly, in fact, within probably a few minutes, I had to learn it, was that uh, these animals displace so much water when their tails are moving up and down. I was able to use what we call the footprint as a means of increasing my speed without changing the throttle. So I was effectively surfing down what they were creating to maintain contact with the animals, just searching for an opportunity to, to get a tag. That's insane. Oh, my God. <clears throat> yeah, it probably was. And again, I, 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 I don't think we'd do it again, but um, uh, 2013 was a, a really interesting voyage uh, where we learned a lot we learnt what to do and we learnt what not to do and we learnt just how powerful these animals are and they're not to be messed with. In the time that you've been part of these voyages, how has the technology you're applying to the situation changed? Ah, oh, yeah, the technology is... I mean, it's fast-moving. Um, with the advent of drones and uh, things like that, uh, I, I imagine that the risk of chasing whales in small boats to put satellite tags will not be a thing um in fact it's already developed that technology drones deploying satellite tags so my suspicion is that um i'll be uh <laughs> put back on the bench or at least back to the marine mammal observer position uh but yeah just within the time frame that we worked the the progress of technology on the satellite tags themselves was phenomenal they've gone from a 25 centimeter deep implantation tag to tiny little anchored things which are you know barely six inches across um, don't protrude out of the animal as much and certainly do not protrude into the animal as much so it's a it's a much safer um, and better way of doing satellite tagging and it's, it's yielding some great results so uh, I look forward to that the advancement of technology, even if it doesn't mean that I'll be out of the small boat, um, I'm, I'm still happy being part of these voyages. Are there plans to head south again for you? No plans in place. I'd like to think that we will one day get an opportunity. Um, I've now done three Antarctic voyages under the Blue Whale 
um, program. Uh, all have been successful uh, in one in all different methods. Um, they're not always about tagging. Um, they're not even always about biopsy. Sometimes they're just about spatial presence and distribution uh, in relation to krill and, and working with other scientists. So you know, some in some ways, it's up to the other scientists how how we progress this. Uh, I'd like to think that the program will continue. It was initially a five-year program. Obviously, we're, we're beyond that. In fact, we'll be beyond it in our last voyage in 2019. Um, but I am still on the radar and uh, I stand ready to support the Antarctic Division should the opportunity present. Dave Donnelly, thank you so much for your time and your insights. My pleasure, anytime. Catching up with Dave reminded me that I've worked with some pretty amazing people in pretty much every job I've ever held. And the recent year that I've spent at Point Wilson working on construction barges and cargo boats introduced me to a tranche of people that I hope to keep in touch with for the rest of my life. They are absolute diamonds. And it's always risky running a list like this in case you forget someone and cause tremendous offence, but I'm going to give it a go. So there was Pete, who wasn't on the boats with me for long, but he was my introduction to the vessel Phoenix, and he kept me safe in my earliest days aboard it. There's Dan, who was introduced to me as Tommy Dan, to keep him distinct from Dan P, who, in spite being half my age, was like sage-wise and just I'm so excited about the adventures that he's headed off to now. Josh Quinn came to Maritime Industries through engineering and watching him work an engine and think about the problems that a boat encounters in its day-to-day operations was eye-opening. Simo, as site manager, I normally try and stay a little bit removed from the people in charge of a show so that there's no emotional or social complications in what is essentially a business transaction between us. But Simo just impressed the hell out of me in terms of his capacity as an operator. And watching him trace electrical faults through the control relay systems on Phoenix was gobsmacking. He assures me it's all just a matter of experience, but to me it looked like magic. There's not many people in my life that I have so little in common with as Benny. There's no common history, there's no common interests, uh, politically quite different. And for someone so distinct from my own circle and experience, we could spend a lot of time together and be quite happy in each other's company. Robin is just a hell of an impressive operator. Watching Robin hip up to and tow barges like it was nothing was part of the reason that I asked to take on deckhand duties when there was no marine mammal observing work to do. There must be something about the name Glenn that makes a person equivalent to a human sheepdog because Glenn on the boats was like Glenn in the trauma cleaning industry, just someone that works and works and works and is always concerned about the the well-being of other people around them. Really touched me, asking me about my mental health when I was struggling through the winter a bit. It was a minor blip, but just that someone was paying attention to those around them to the extent that they noticed I was struggling and reached out and made sure that I knew that I had their support if I needed it. Um, It was, as I said, a minor blip, but just knowing that someone was watching and thinking in that space really touched me. 
John and I connected over a common interest in local history and models. John mostly works in wood and mostly builds the sort of traditional half models of watercraft. I probably spent more time on those boats with Jasmine than anyone else and I really feel tremendous gratitude to her for patience in teaching me things and generosity in terms of putting up with my nonsense at close quarters for 10 hours a day, six days a week, and still coming through it smiling. Jasmine's partner, Josh, was also a tremendous mentor to me. Both these people are half my age, and they're just so experienced in this context and so generous with their time and energy. Josh's sense of humour and insight reminded me a lot of my friend Paul Bruin, who I haven't seen in about four years. He's in the Falkland Islands someone that can make me laugh as readily as Paul is a, an absolute gem. Hugo and I mostly worked together on the refit of one of the work punts and in that short time and very intense pressure cooker experience uh, I really came to appreciate his talents in the moment but just grew to understand how far he's travelled and how much he's done. Out of all the crew I spent the least time with Pez but I did see him pull the iron out of the fire one day when a barge was going sideways in the wind and heading towards the pier and just put Mercator in the right spot at the right time and gave it the right nudge. Even if that was the only thing I knew about Pez, it would be a big deal. Looking to the safety of vessels is the same thing as looking to the safety of the people on those things, and it's a big deal when someone can retrieve a, a situation that's going sideways. I spent quite a bit of time on the boats and in refit and painting a house with Jeff. And again, for someone less than half my age, there's just a wealth of experience going on in that operator. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what adventures come next for Jeff. Chris is another person that can make me laugh very readily. And another person so young and yet so experienced. I learned a lot from Chris and... Stories that they told me in the wheelhouse of Phoenix will live with me forever. Dan P has got the darkest sense of humour of anyone I know, and it really made the days pass quickly to spend time in his company. I'm catching up with him this evening, and I'm just so amped about it. Luke was the youngest member of the team, and watching Luke upskill from deckhand to coxswain through the course of the year was something I played no role in but something that was immensely satisfying to watch. Fellow marine mammal observers Andre and Maddie, who also served as deckhands on occasion and were the regulars for the water sampling program, marine scientists with the same curiosity and sense of wonder about marine systems that saw me enter my career and both good company and steady as a rock in terms of reliability and focus on purpose. Joel is a skipper and a diver that makes it all look so easy that you almost can't believe that these are learned skills. Very patient with me in helping me achieve my next goals as a maritime operator and I'm so grateful that they saw my potential and took me on as an employee. Claire is another person that makes spending time at sea working 
a breeze. Uh, the time just flies past and you get a lot done. And Claire has been very patient with me handing in timesheets and my pay has always been on time and bang on the money. And that's not always the case in maritime industry, so I'm grateful. John Tyrrell is the only member of the team I'm confident is older than me, and and yet he still projects an energy of someone half my age. He is a joy to learn from. I got so much helm time under John that by the end of the contract, I was driving Dangerfield into and out of situations that previously would have terrified me. And there's good reason he's as respected in the local maritime industries as he is. He is a first-class operator, and he knows Port Phillip waters back to front, inside out. Weird currents, odd tides, weather patterns. He takes it all into account and synthesizes the best possible route for the best possible fuel economy and gives you the best possible conversation while you follow that course. Jordan and I probably spent more time in refit aboard Dangerfield than on any other vessel in any other tasking. And the night we thought we were watching a cult play out a ritual sacrifice at Martha's Cove will stand as one of the most memorable nights of my life. I had such a good time in Jordan's company and I learned so much during that refit. I'd never picked up an angle grinder before. And based on my experience with one, I will probably never use a hacksaw again. Those things are fantastic. Jordan and I put the new genset into Dangerfield, and that in itself was a new and powerful learning experience for me. Watching that thing run for the first time was the culmination of a lot of hard yards and a lot of good laughs. And I may be working with Jordan again in the very near future. I'm hoping that comes together. We'll see what happens. Of the fleet, I think Phoenix and Dangerfield are absolute favourites. Both of them catamaran hulls, both of them lots of deck space for carrying cargo. Somewhere to get in and out of the weather, in Phoenix case, quite comfortable. And just, I think, more than any of those factors. It's the good times I had on those boats with some of these people that really cement those vessels in my heart. Thank you to everyone that made 2022 such a memorable year for me. I know some of you listened to the series and I'm grateful that that caught your attention. I look forward to keeping in touch and following your adventures. You are amazing people. Take care and appreciate your coffee. And furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Meersham should be avoided.